hppodcraft.com. Hello, Bruce. Haven't seen you in a dog's age. Come in. I threw open the door and he followed me into the room. His gaunt, ungainly figure sprawled awkwardly into the chair I indicated, and he twirled his hat between nervous fingers. His deep-set eyes wore a worried, hunted look, and he glanced furtively around the room as if searching for a hidden something which might unexpectedly pounce upon him. His face was haggard and colorless. The corners of his mouth twitched spasmodically. What's the matter, old man? You look as if you'd seen a ghost. Brace up. I crossed to the buffet and poured a small glass of wine from the decanter. Drink this. Wine? This man doesn't need wine. He needs brandy. Don't they know how these things work? (laughs) I think we both could probably use a brandy after reading this crap machine. Oh, my God. I sat down to do my notes, and I just wanted to write, Are you kidding me with this? (laughs) That's all. (laughs) This story is called Ashes. Mm. More like asses. (laughs) (laughs) And it's the third collaboration of Lovecraft and C.M. Eddy. That's right. Ashes crashes. And we're going to talk about it here on the (laughs) H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. We're here at HPPodcraft.com and Patreon. Who is that reader? Well, you know what they say when you're about to give a story a really good reaming. The reader you need is Mr. Andrew Lee. <laughs> Andrew Lehman, ladies and gentlemen, don't forget to check out his work at the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. They've got some awesome new episodes of Dark Adventure Radio Theater to check out, as well as the usual collection of props and music and movies. Head on over to hplhs.org to see it all. Uh, you know, I don't think we're going to top that, man. <laughs> I think we might have just well just wrap up the show right there. You're probably right. <sighs> but we're obligated to continue. Yes. So uh... Let's talk about Ashes. This story was first published in Weird Tales in the March 1924 issue. It's not very Lovecraftian, and uh, the only way that we know that he actually had anything to do with this was in a letter. Yes, S.T. Joshi described Ashes as perhaps the single worst tale among H.P. Lovecraft's revisions. (laughs) And I found some further comment from Joshi in his essay, Lovecraft's Revisions. How much of them did he write? This is what it says. Many are unaware that Lovecraft revised at least four tales for C.M. Eddie Jr., his early associate in Providence. The first appears to be the deservedly forgotten Ashes. (laughs) And if Lovecraft himself had not mentioned that he had corrected this work, no one would have ever detected a Lovecraftian element in it. This is evidently the first of the revisions and the one in which Lovecraft had the least hand. Unfortunately, he does seem to have had a small hand in it, perhaps contributing random snatches of prose. It is a pointless and hackneyed tale with a nauseating romantic (laughs) element that, by the standards of 1923, might almost have been termed pornographic. I don't know about pornographic, but I definitely agree with pointless and hackneyed. <laughs> it would have been funny if Joshi had a footnote and you went down and looked at it and he was like more like asses. He made the same <laughs> joke as you. <laughs> anyway, the, this story is plain, is just plain stupid. Let's get into it. It begins with the narrator being visited by this guy, Malcolm Bruce. The narrator is referred to as Prague. He doesn't seem to be much more than a device for telling this story. Right. Even though I take that back because in the end, he kind of has some common sense. (laughs) He does have some common sense. So, yeah, yeah, but basically, yeah, he frames the story. Bruce shows up at Prague's place unsettled and troubled. Which is strange because normally Bruce, it says, is a man of steady nerves and iron will. Maybe Lovecraft donated that phrase. Uh, They, of course, have some drinks and smoke some cigars. I've just been through the most devilish and gruesome experience that ever befell a man. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't know whether I dare tell it or not, for fear you'll think I've gone crazy. And I wouldn't blame you if you did. 
but it's true. Every word of it. He pauses and then it says he blows a few smoke rings, which doesn't really seem like something a truly unsettled person would no. do, you know? No. I'm so upset. Watch while I do this trick. <laughs> <laughs> There's some Gatsby-esque lines here from Prague that maybe were written by Lovecraft. I thought this could have been something he contributed. Okay. It says, Many a weird tale I had listened to over that self-same table. There must have been some kink in my personality that inspired confidence, for I had been told stories that some men would have given years of their life to have heard. And yet... Despite my love of the bizarre and the dangerous, and my longing to explore far reaches of little-known lands, I had been doomed to a life of prosaic, flat, uneventful business. Hmm. You know, love of the bizarre and dangerous has got a little yeah. picture-in-the-house kind of vibe to it, maybe. But doomed to a life prosaic, flat, and uneventful, so... Yeah. Yeah. He's just got some that. lame job, even though he would prefer to be a adventuring and loving up on the bizarre and the dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, after Bruce blows some dramatic smoke rings and does some dramatic yo-yo tricks... <laughs> He just, no, he doesn't do yo-yo tricks. He decides to finally get into his story of what has just happened. So Bruce tells Prague that he got a job with a professor, Van Allister. Van Allister was a former college professor that they both had in, while they were in school together. He took this job about four months ago. So Van Allister was working on some private projects and he needed an assistant. And that's where Bruce comes in. And they know that Van Allister had resigned as professor of chemistry at the college so he could have more time for his experiments. Although those are unknown what it actually is he's working on. Mm. And Bruce, you know, he says, I dabbled in chemistry in college, as you know, so it was a good fit. Van Allister already had a secretary doing some work for him, a Miss Marjorie Purdy. Now, she's very lovely and smart, and Bruce quickly falls for her. She's as good-looking as she was efficient. She had been helping Van Allister a bit in his laboratory, and I soon discovered she took a genuine interest in puttering around, making experiments of her own. So, she's beautiful and does science. Yeah, that's pretty cool, though. Pretty cool. You don't have a lot of women Um, doing science in these stories. Yeah. It's not too condescending, either. She's just real good at it. They develop a relationship. It says, I began to depend on her to help me in difficult experiments. When the professor was busy, I never could seem to stump her. That girl took to chemistry as a duck takes to water. That's her deal. She's good at it. Pretty good. So, obviously, this doesn't seem like a Lovecraft story because we've got a a woman in it and a very competent woman in it. So, uh, two months after starting to work there, Professor Van Allister builds a partition to separate part of the lab. And there he works by himself, uh, thereby giving Bruce and Purdy more time alone. Right. With this romantic angle... Again, we know Lovecraft has little to do with this story. And that's too bad, because he might have been more creative with the name Miss Purdy. You know, it's a little <laughs> on the nose. She's very purdy. But Van Allister, he's obviously up to ma- some mad science. It says, he told us that he was about to enter upon a series of experiments which, if successful, would bring him everlasting fame. He flatly refused to make us his confidants in any way, shape, or manner. Okay, well, that's exciting. It's a mad scientist thing. I, you don't know what he could be working on. It could mm-hmm. be an invisibility potion, a giant oh, laser, yeah. mm-hmm. maybe a gorilla that can drive <laughs> or can actually transform into a car. could be any of those things. <laughs> this story is pure potential at this point. And, and, and the romantic relationship grows. Bruce says, I felt a growing admiration for the trim young woman who seemed perfectly content to fuss around smelly bottles and sticky messes. <laughs> I believe he's talking about working in the lab. <laughs> I hope. But it would be funny if he were like, and that's just my car. Whoa, hey. You know, I'm still stuck on this gorilla that can turn into a car thing, which is yeah. a terrible idea because then the car would just like keep driving to banana stands and stuff. 
it wouldn't get you anywhere that you needed to go. Unless, of course, you wanted to buy bananas. And then that's true. That's the one job it would be good for. Yes, and it'll revolutionize banana shopping. <laughs> so, I will have everlasting fame. So now we move to just two days before Bruce's visit with Prague. Van Alistair invites Bruce and Purdy into a secret lab and shows them what he has been working on. He's got a small bottle of colorless liquid that he shows them. And he says, I have here what will rank as the greatest chemical discovery ever known. I'm going to prove its efficacy right before your eyes. Van Alistair puts a rabbit into a glass box and then a lid on that glass box. He puts a funnel into a, a hole in the top of the box and then the evil magic happens. He uncorked the bottle and poised it above the rabbit's prison. Now to prove whether my weeks of effort have resulted in success or failure. Slowly, methodically, he emptied the contents of the bottle into the funnel and we watched it trickle into the compartment with the frightened animal. Miss Purdy uttered a suppressed cry, and I rubbed my eyes to make sure that they had not deceived me. For in the case where but a moment before there had been a live, terrified rabbit, there was now nothing but a pile of soft, white ashes. <gasps> Van Alistair has created a formula that turns animals, presumably people, to ash. Mm-hmm. which seems like kind of a weird thing to be striving for. But uh, <laughs> he clarifies exactly what this thing could do. It will instantaneously reduce to a fine ash anything which it comes into contact, except glass. Just think what that means. An army equipped with glass bombs filled with my compound could annihilate the world. Wood, metal, stone, brick, everything swept away before them, leaving no more trace than the rabbit I have just experimented upon. Just a pile of soft white ashes. <laughs> I expected Bruce to raise his hand. Um, Professor, you've heard of fire, right? <laughs> like somebody's told you about fire? Because what you're describing is what, that's what fire does. <laughs> it's so dumb. It is. It's really dumb. And he says that it will instantaneously reduce to a fine ash anything with which it comes to contact. Wood, metal, stone, brick. So why experiment on somebody? If you're going to experiment on a, on a living creature, presumably that's because the creature... You want to see if they'll still live through whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if you know it eradicates wood, metal, stone, I don't think you even need to do the experiment on a living creature. You pretty can be pretty sure what's yeah. going to happen. I got a lot of questions about how this thing works, too, because it's like if it touches one part of you and then it spreads to all of you, does it if it touches my hand, will it will it turn my clothes to ash? And right. if where will it, it turn stop? all? Yeah, where does it stop? How does it know when the, the effect ends? That's a good point. And also, what happens to all the liquid? Where does it go? I don't know. I thought maybe it could reduce people to ash and then bring them back at this point, kind of like Charles Dexter Ward. Yes. Like, yeah, I, the thought crossed my mind as well. Which would be helpful. Like, if you were traveling, you could turn yourself to ash, mail the jar somewhere, they bring you back on the other end, cheap, efficient. There are practical applications for that. That was the plot in the, the, the Batman movie from the 19, 1968 Batman movie. Remember the bad guys had all the world leaders and then they they turned them to dust and then they took the dust and then they were... Do you remember that? No, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, this was a plot that was later used for uh, the Batman movie. Wow, I love that movie. I just haven't seen it since I was little. But they also are able to reconstitute. Much more clever than what's going on here because this formula just turns things to ash. Yeah, which you can, you know, can do with fire. Already, it seems so. to do it more efficiently than fire. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's kind of like seven-minute abs instead of eight-minute abs, I guess. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I'm surprised they aren't immediately disturbed by Van Alistair's plan to apply this stuff. because He doesn't even offer a positive. 
you know, we could use this to raise old buildings safely without releasing destructive pollutants into the air, something like that. Oh, yeah. It's immediately an army equipped with glass bombs filled with my compound could annihilate the world. It's purely for destruction, and he's into it. Yeah, he's really excited about it. Van Alistair dismisses them, and then, after they leave, Purdy has a bit of a swoon. Yes, she faints a bit, and he catches her in his arms. Then things get steamy slash creepy. The feel of her soft, yielding body held close to my own was the last straw. I cast prudence to the winds and crushed her tightly to my breast. Kiss after kiss, I pressed upon her full red lips until her eyes opened, and I saw the love light reflected in them. (laughs) So, I'm not sure you should... No, I'm not going to say I'm not sure. I'm definitely sure that you should not kiss somebody while they're swooning. No. <laughs> you got to get some consent there. And that, it seems really inappropriate and the mm. wrong t- Like, you just watched a rabbit get, like, murdered, and then <laughs> and then she faints because she's so freaked out. So, like, here's my chance. This is the time to make my move. <laughs> However, she seems into it. So, I guess he made the right call. I guess so. Yeah, she, she returns. She's got the love light on. Turn on your love light. (laughs) This made me think, though, you know, how Lovecraft's protagonists are always fainting. And then they say, I can't recall what happened. I woke up a day later in the hospital Uh or whatever. Maybe when they fainted, they got kissed a bunch. And they're just gentlemen, so they don't want to talk about it. So they're just covering, you know. That makes sense. Yeah. You've unraveled a mystery that has (laughs) troubled scholars. Eddie's kind of pulling back the curtain on what happens here when these characters faint. He's, he's He's the one who's finally, finally let us know what's going on. Because all these guys in these stories are gentlemen, and gentlemen don't kiss and tell. That's right. Just discovering their boss is a mad scientist, again, that, I guess, gets people amorous because <laughs> they they make love, you know, I guess is right. what happens there. Do they have sex over here? Listen to this. Yeah. After a delicious eternity, we came back to Earth again, long enough to realize that the laboratory was no place for such ardent demonstrations. At any moment, Van Alistair might come out of his retreat, and if he should discover our lovemaking in his present state of mind, we dared not think of what might happen. When they say lovemaking, that means, like, in the 1920s, that just meant making out. Yeah, that's what I thought. I don't think that they were... Because they say in his present state of mind. So if he was in a good mood and he caught them having sex, would he be cool with that? So obviously he's not having sex. They're <laughs> yeah, just kissing. He would. He'd be like, finally. Or maybe he's into that. I don't know. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna kink shame him if that's his thing. <laughs> I set this up for a reason. <laughs> I I don't think, yeah, it says there was no place for such ardent demonstrations. I don't think I think they're just kissing all. Yeah, time. they're just kissing. Well, because yeah, yeah. Joshi did say that it was a, a slightly on the pornographic side, so I thought maybe. Maybe. No. It gets a little steamier in, in a bit here. Yeah. They go back to work and Bruce tells Prague like how he is just in heaven about Miss Purdy. After work that night, we gave over to the joys of our newfound happiness. Prague, I shall remember that night as long as I live. The happiest moment I have ever known was when Marjorie Purdy promised to become my wife. Yeah, so I think they got down to it. Yeah. After work. Yeah. And they're, they're moving pretty fast to kiss at lunch, engagement for dinner. <laughs> So now we move to the next day before this conversation with Prague. He and Purdy work side by side in the morning, totally excited about all the sex they had and were going to have. It says, Then followed another night of lovemaking. Marjorie returned my devotion a hundredfold. She gave herself unreservedly into my keeping. Maybe that's the pornographic element. Oh, right, yeah. The next day, which is today, the day he's telling the story to Prague. Yes. He has to split from the lab around noon to get something from the drugstore. And when he gets back... Marjorie is gone. Yes, her hat and coat are gone as well. And the professor is locked away in his lab. None of the servants have seen her. So now we know that there are servants 
because I didn't know there were any servants until this point. So Bruce is freaking out. Evening came and still no sign of my dear little girl. You can't imagine how I suffered. From the heights of sublime love, I mentally plunged to the darkest depths of despair. Bruce spends the day freaking out, and it isn't until 7.30 at night that Van Alistair calls him into a secret lab. He says, I was in no mood for experiments, but while I was under his roof, he was my master, and it was for me to obey. So when he enters, Bruce notices a coffin-sized glass box with liquid in it. That clear liquid, that's probably the ashy stuff. Mm -hmm. He also notices a new glass jar with ashes inside of it and a label with no writing but then he sees something that makes his heart stop on a chair in a far corner of the workshop was the hat and coat of the girl who had pledged her life to mine the girl whom i had vowed to cherish and protect while life should last my senses were numbed my soul surcharged with horror as realization flashed over me there could be but one explanation the ashes in that jar were the ashes of Marjorie Purdy. And that was italicized. Yes. I'm sure you could tell in Andrew Lehman's reading that that was italicized. <laughs> the ashes in that jar were the ashes of Marjorie Purdy. So there you go. Maybe that's Lovecraft. Yeah, maybe. But it's not the end of the story. Bruce flips out and he attacks Van Alistair. Van Alistair wrestles him and he kind of gets him closer to the glass coffin. But Bruce is able to grab an unlabeled glass jar and he smashes it over his head. And Van Alistair is knocked out cold on the floor. It's the unlabeled glass jar that he thinks Marjorie's ashes are in that he oh. smashes over his head. And I, oh, I'm right. still harboring some delusion that the ashes maybe could be returned to life. I was going, no, don't use the <laughs> jar of ashes to fight him. They're going to go. It's going to go everywhere. And then you can't bring her back to life. This is going to be so ironic. Oh, uh, boy. No, that, that didn't happen. At no, all. but then things get super murdery here. Bruce. <laughs> He picks up Professor Van Alistair and he puts him in the coffin. Yes. What? Van Alistair and the liquid turn to white ash. So I thought maybe he would, if this was going to be something that happens, like maybe when they're fighting, he accidentally gets pushed in there and then he dies. But this is totally premeditated. Oh, yeah. The guy's knocked unconscious on the floor. He scoops him up, drops him in the coffin. Poof. That's murder. Yeah, that's murder. Maybe we can finally compete with some of these other murder podcasts now. (laughs) Let's unravel this mystery. Well, he said earlier, I went mad, stark staring mad. So, you know, I think he's just got crazy brain and he's so angry because this guy murdered his uh, Miss Purdy. Yes. He's going to murder him back. And it does say here, as I gazed at my handiwork, the brainstorm passed away and I came face to face with the cold, hard truth that I killed a fellow being. Right. But then he immediately switches to, but you know what? There's no evidence against me because there's just some ashes in here. Yeah, exactly. He's like, barring the fact that I was the last one known to be alone with the professor. Mm -hmm. It's true. If you dispose of a body, you never get caught. (laughs) So Bruce tells the servant that the professor doesn't want to be disturbed and he leaves to try and figure out what to do. And that's why he's here at Prague's now. Time to go blow some smoke rings. (laughs) So he's finished this part of the story. He says, here I am. Do with me as you will. Life holds nothing more for me now that Marjorie is gone. So Prague gets on his hat and coat and he asks Bruce if he's sure that Miss Purdy is dead. Ah, yes, the common sense section. And Bruce says, well, of course. But Prague points out that there's no way that he could know those who those ashes belong to. And with a seed of doubt, they decide that they better go search Van Alistair's place. They grab a taxi, they head over. And I'm telling you, this is a very short story, actually. I was still saying, get on with it <laughs> at this point. <laughs> they look around and Prague notices that there is a locked door. Bruce says, that's just a storage room. But Prague insists, let's open it. We got to make sure. So they break in. (laughs) Bruce is an idiot. Bruce runs in to find a large chest and he pulls out some keys that he has and he unlocks it. 
Inside is Marjorie Purdy. He takes her out and he mixes up something to wake her up. Oops, that was the ashes formula. <laughs> Damn it. Thought it was brandy. And she explains what happened. Well, it says later after the first few moments of reunion, the girl told us her story. So I think they had sex real quick with Prague oh. in the room. And that's the pornographic part Jesse was talking about. Uh, wait, Prague was in the room with him? Oh, yeah. He was just hanging out, blowing oh. smoke rings. Uh, okay. Yeah, it makes sense now. <laughs> So she came into the professor's lab with her hat and coat because he wanted her to go out and run some kind of errand for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when she came into the lab, he attacked her and he tied her up. It says it was needless to gag me. As you know, the laboratory is absolutely soundproof. So <laughs> earlier when they were talking about Van Alistair, Prague had said, I even helped him choose the plans for that soundproof laboratory of his. So they had set this soundproofing thing up much earlier in the story. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I mean, I had hoped, oh, maybe he's making, turning alligators into dragons in there. There's a <laughs> hyena man or something cool going on that would require some kind of soundproofing. Yeah. You know, so people don't know he's making monsters. But I guess he just wanted it soundproof so that he could abduct his secretary without having to gag her. That's like the only reason. They really set something up there that has a stupid payoff. <laughs> yes. Because if it's supposedly his turning things to ash, that doesn't make any sound. No. So why? It's totally stupid. What happens, she's tied up. He then brought in a big dog, and he used this formula on this dog, turns it to dust. Why? I don't know. Is it because it's some, like a dog is in size somewhere between a rabbit and a person, so he's just... I I guess. Working his way up. It's so stupid. Well, maybe he thought, well, the rabbit totally turned to ash. Maybe if I do, like, a bigger animal, only half of it will turn to ash, and it'll be all gross and weird. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, maybe that's true. He then brought out the coffin and filled it with formula he said he needed to test it on a human being and it would be an honor to die for his cause yes and so you think oh he's gonna put marjorie in there but no she's not to be the victim she is to be the witness why why what will her witness why this why other than get him arrested for murder (laughs) i know it's so stupid also why not test this on a cadaver why does the person have to be alive Yes. And if they do have to be alive, why do it to the people who work for you? Yes. Instead of, like, just pick a random person so you don't get caught. Yeah. After she sees this, she passed out, and then the professor decided, oh, well, she she freaked out. I best put her in a box in the storage room? Yeah, until it's witnessing time. Until it's witnessing time. Well, I guess it was so that Bruce wouldn't suspect anything when he shows up, when he showed up eventually. So he could abduct him, but... But then how was she going to witness? Aside from that, even if she's in the chest, if she wakes up, she could just kick and scream and Bruce would know she was there. Because yeah. being in a but, soundproof room doesn't mean you can't hear the sounds in the room, right? Well, <laughs> also, she wasn't stored in the soundproof room. She was stored yeah. in a storage room, which wasn't part of the secret lab. She stayed fainted all through Bruce's murdering of the professor as well. Yeah. She was just quietly in there, passed out. Like she fainted and then just, I guess, went to sleep afterwards. Yeah. Because that's a long time to be passed out from a faint. I, You know, I don't know medically how long one is actually unconscious after fainting. Well, you're, Are you unconscious? Is that unconsciousness in a faint? You can be unconscious. Yeah, we've read enough Lovecraft to know. You know, important things happen while you're unconscious. Sure, you wake up a day later. Right. Well, she says everything went black before her eyes. Next, I opened them to find myself here with you, Malcolm. Her voice sank to a hoarse, nervous whisper. Where? Where is the professor? Bruce silently led her into the workshop. She shivered as the coffin of glass came within her range of vision. Still silently, he crossed directly to the casket 
and taking up a handful of the soft white ashes, let them sift slowly through his fingers. And this is what I'm going to do to you if you back out of our marriage. <laughs> it's so creepy. You got a long future of stinky bottles and sticky messes, Mrs. Bruce. <laughs> that's the end I mean, of the story. That's the end of the story. That's like a threat or something at the end. It is. It's weird. It's so weird and nonsensical and none of it makes any <laughs> sense. Why are these people doing the things that they're doing? It's terrible. I kind of liked The Love Dead. Obviously, I thought there was some good writing in there and it was kind of scary. The Ghost yeah. Eater was dumb, but it was kind of fun. This story is ludicrous. Yeah. It feels really juvenile, actually. It's nutty. And yeah, Lovecraft couldn't have had much to do with it. Yeah, I guess it was his first one, and he was probably, because Eddie was a published author, he was like, well, this guy knows what he's doing, so I better yeah. not. Well, he, had a, he had, must have had something to do with it, because this story, along with The Ghost Eater, was rejected by Weird Tales initially. Yes. And then Lovecraft did some quote-unquote corrections. And then so it might have just been proofreading. Could be, yeah. It's tough, and I could see why uh, this is kind of one of those forgotten stories. I wish yeah. I could forget it. <laughs> I don't know. It was a fun read, at least, because it was just so ludicrous. I was, why is anybody doing what they're doing right now? Yes, yeah. It, and it does move at a good clip. I wasn't ever bored reading this thing. It was always like, what? Huh? There's, why is that happening? The issue is that there's nothing really special about this process that turns people to ashes no. the net result is just that it, it kills them yeah there's no like cool sci-fi application of this idea yeah you know the kind of fun and games part of it where you're like right. okay we've got this cool concept now let's explore how this would be used and what would happen every you know, other like mad it, scientist story we read it's like i'm gonna change myself into a different person or i'm gonna turn invisible i'm gonna make these alligators healthier and they're gonna turn into dragons you know, or some kind of <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Put and a human brain in a lizard or whatever. You know, it's always like there's some kind of something odd and crazy to it. And this one, it's like I've discovered a knife, and if I stick it in this rabbit, it dies. It doesn't make any. It's not like he. There's a part where he robs a bank with it. You know, that might be fun. Oh, where right. he takes it and drops like he's got a little glass eyedropper and he drops it on the wall and then the wall sure. turns to ash and then he goes and you know like yeah he puts it, it in a super soaker and the cops are chasing him across the bridge and he like turns part of the bridge to ashes or something like now you're talking doing fun cool things with this uh, you know being able to turn anything to ash that this stuff touches so yeah that would be a cool bit to the story but no the only things he ever does with it is he murders a rabbit and a dog <laughs> And then, and then he gets murdered by yeah. it. Like you said, these same things could have been done with a knife <laughs> or acid. You know, like it's mm -hmm. a big thing of glass. Acid works the same way, except it's, you know, a sludge and it yeah. takes a lot longer. It's not instantaneous. So it's fast acting acid, basically, I guess right. is, is what it is. And that's not that particularly interesting. So yeah, it's just like a super weapon. It's a super weapon. Sure. <laughs> Well, <laughs> speaking of super, we had a real super reader today. Boy, did we. Andrew Lehman rocking it out. As always, go over to the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society and see what they've got on offer over there. Lots of Dark Adventure Radio Theater episodes that are pretty amazing. Come with lots of cool props. You know, they got the movies. They got the, the merchandise, oh, the T-shirts. So they got great everything. Great stuff. Yeah, you got to go over there. If you haven't been there before, get your ass over there right now. <laughs> buy some stuff. I also want to thank some of our beautiful, wonderful patrons. Let's do that. I'd like to thank Jacqueline Curtis. I'd like to thank Matthew Bizzle. I'd like to thank William Gross. I'd like to thank Charles Strickland. Hey, Tim. Thanks. Noah Sudret, thank you so much. I'd like to thank Mike Vogst. I'd like to thank Daniel Onions. Andrew Buchanan, thank you. Thank you, Niels. 
And lastly, I'd like to thank Ben Janot. You guys are all amazing, and uh, I really feel like we introduced you to some good literature today. <laughs> We're doing a public service here. This is a story you know you really should read yourself. Yeah. Don't just take our word for it. This is one you should definitely read. <laughs> uh, uh, this one is available in the Love Dead and Other Revisions, which is a collection of H.P. Lovecraft's revisions, and it's got other stuff like Medusa's Coil, another another winner. gem, The Tree on the Hill, Horror at Martin's Beach, yeah. uh, The Disinterment, The Night Ocean, which is actually a really good story. Yeah, I like uh, Martin's Beach, too. There's some good ones in there. And a few others. Yeah, there's a couple yeah. of other good collaboration so if you don't have those some of those aren't available online none of the cmedi stuff is so if you want it gotta get it in print next week we're gonna do the last cmedi slash lovecraft story and uh, actually the last lovecraft story we'll ever do probably yeah deaf dumb and blind that's all we got for this week thanks so much for tuning in i'm chad pfeiffer and i'm chris lackey and you've been listening to the hp lovecraft literary podcast at hppodcraft.com hppodcraft.com hp